When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, cracking the hermetic code. Revealing Masonic symbolism in public places. He contained in one building this kind of encyclopedia of world architecture as an homage to the craft of Freemasonry. And in that regard, there is one building that stands alone as the beau ideal of perfection, and that's King Solomon's Temple. And that's where he chose to incorporate perhaps the most important room in the building as a perfect reconstruction of the Holy of Holies of King Solomon's Temple with a replica Ark of the Covenant. Did you know you can now stream episodes of this podcast on your mobile device? All you need is my new Conspiracy Unlimited app. It's absolutely free and it's available for both iOS and Android devices. If you're a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member, pay attention. You can now stream premium content from your mobile device. My free Conspiracy Unlimited app for iOS and Android. Available from the App Store and Google Play. Get yours today and start streaming Conspiracy Unlimited on your mobile device. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Well, I'm dipping into my vast audio archives for this one, going back a couple of years to February 2018 with architectural historian Frank Albo. Enjoy. Frank Albo was featured as the uh, the code-breaking protagonist in the best-selling book, The Hermetic Code, and uh, he is an architectural historian, and we'll touch on the Masonic symbology encoded in uh, places like the uh, the Manitoba legislature. But he has this beautiful, beautiful new book out, Astana, Architecture, Myth, and Destiny. Now, Astana is not, uh, you know, some mythical, well, it is mythical, but it's real, too. It's this gleaming, modern capital city of Kazakhstan. And without a doubt, the world's weirdest capital city. We're going to find out all about the architecture in Astana. And we'll also learn about the Astana Challenge. If you solve the puzzle of the hidden messages in this book, 
you could win a luxury vacation to what Mr. Albo is calling the Illuminati capital of the world, Astana, the Illuminati capital of the world. Well, he'll tell us more in, uh, in mere moments. The only thing I know about Kazakhstan is um, uh, we had a, uh, being a Toronto Maple Leaf fan, I remember we had a, a, a kind of a, a big, lanky forward by the name of Andropov, and he was from Kazakhstan. That's it. That's all you know. And then, all of a sudden, the other day in the mail comes this very, very heavy book. There were two of them, actually. And my little guy, North, is on mail call duty this week, so he had to go to the, the door. He could barely carry this thing down the stairs. It's it's just a solid – it's like a coffee table book, except it's not just all beautiful, glossy photographs. And there are there are many of them. It's just jam-packed with amazing information here as well. And uh, we're going to talk about that. Astana, the architecture, the myth, and destiny. It is the ninth largest country in the world. It's the largest landlocked country in the world. And, of course, a former Soviet republic. But it has some weird architecture. Some of it's, you know, it's very new. It's shiny and gleamy, but it's got uh, some obvious ancient Egyptian influences. There's a pyramid there, the phoenix, uh, the world's largest glass sphere, which I believe is the library. So, again, why are some calling Astana... World Headquarters for the Illuminati. Let's find out, shall we? Frank Albo was featured as the code-breaking protagonist in the best-selling book, The Hermetic Code, and his approach to architecture, landscape, and design seeks to transform public spaces into interactive journeys of discovery, which elevate the mind and promote a sense of wonder. He holds graduate de- graduate degrees in ancient Near Eastern languages, art history, and a Ph.D. in the history of architecture from the University of Cambridge. Dr. Albo has a unique ability to peel back conventional history to provide new vistas of understanding about our built environment and the cultures of the past. He's currently an adjunct professor of history at the University of Winnipeg, where he specializes in architecture, Freemasonry, and the Western esoteric tradition. Frank Albo, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for inviting me, Richard. It's, um, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, first of all, congrats on the book. This is truly impressive. Uh, it's just, it's a, it's a gorgeous book. I mean, never mind the information, which is, you know, amazing, but just, it just looks terrific and, uh, um, I, I congratulate you on that. Now, a lot of people, well, a lot of people know you, um, from your book, uh, The Hermetic Code and, and, about uh, you know Masonic symbols in the Manitoba legislature and your search to sort of uncover the uh, the meaning and so forth and and learn about the the architect Frank Worthington um, Simon. So let me ask mm-hmm. you a little bit about that before we move on to Astana. If you well, could uh, certainly yeah, if you could just take us on a, a very quick guided tour of the Manitoba legislature and tell me about some of the the interesting symbols that sort of first jumped out at you. Uh, you know, as a young, I guess, as a young grad student? Well, it happened by sheer accident. Um, I was in the last year of my undergraduate degree, and I was going into the Department of uh, Near and Middle Eastern Languages at the University of Toronto, and I spotted on the roof of the Manitoba Legislative Building two recumbent Egyptian sphinxes. And like the fabled story of old, I was enchanted thoroughly by this bizarre feature and set out to answer, as it were, the riddle of the Sphinx. And that just brought me into the door where um, I began to notice other features of the building that thoroughly inspired me. And um, it took me down a rabbit hole of basically enchantment and discovery where I spent four graduate degrees and ten years trying to get into the mind of the dead British architect and genius, Frank Worthington Simon, who built this building 
as a reconstruction of King Solomon's temple and also a uh, 5,000 years of lost architectural knowledge. He was a high-level Freemason. He believed in the tradition of Freemasonry very deeply and used the building as a tableau to tell the story of his ancient fraternity in a coded way. It's so coded, in fact, that for 100 years no one ever noticed some of the most obvious features of the building, including, of course, that there is Hermes Trismegistus on the dome. The golden boy. Correct. And and explain why is Hermes, or I guess that's Mercury in the ancient Roman pantheon, why why is Hermes special to the Freemasons? Well, Hermes is one of the Prisca Theologia, which for Renaissance historians and scholars was the first philosopher. He was seen as a pagan prophet of Christian truth before the, the coming of the Christian revelation, and a contemporary of Moses. He was attributed to having written 40,000 books, but um, by the time of the Renaissance, these works were lost and then suddenly rediscovered, and it brought about an entirely new way of seeing the ancient world. Um, Hermes, as we know, or Mercury, the um, elusive messenger of Zeus, is not the Hermes Trismegistus um, that I'm speaking of. Uh, This particular Hermes is a a conflation of the Egyptian god Thoth, the god of writing and magic and the ancient scribe, and um, the Mercury that we're familiar with, the guide of souls, the psychopomp, and the trickster. And around late antiquity, both of these figures merge into a new character, Trismegistus, the thrice greatest, and he becomes the father of all esoteric knowledge alchemy, astrology, uh, number magic, mysticism through uh, uh, occult philosophy, and basically the entire species of uh, esoteric philosophy should be uh, attributed in total to this character, Hermes Trismegistus. And in fact, in Freemasonry, he uh, appears in the oldest uh, manuscripts uh, of the medieval period that uh, uh, signaled the origins of Freemasonry. So there he is, glistening on the dome, um, locally known as the Golden Boy, but um, unaware is that he is pointing to these mysteries deep inside the building. Uh, now, Frank Worthington Simon, he did he not did he work on Balmoral Castle for Queen Victoria? Mm-hmm. Did he yeah, remodel he, it or he, something? He worked on several very noted buildings. He was an elusive uh, professor. He had an interest in uh, um, uh, biblical languages. His father, for instance, was um, uh, one of the most famous uh, nonconformist theologians of the British Empire. And uh, at a very young age, he took towards finding uh, mysteries coded in art and architecture and sought to basically rebuild them. So in the case of Balmoral, he he did the the reconstructions there, but he worked on many wonderful buildings. But he had an an artist penchant for truth. He he, he had a wandering spirit, but uh, his final work was this building in in Winnipeg, which at the time was um, the Continental Showpiece. It was the most expensive building in the country. Winnipeg was destined to be the Chicago of the North. It's not the Winnipeg that we uh, see of today. It was um, supposed to be a city of great promise, and this building was the signal, kind of the the Roman maxim, build it and they will come, Uh, this idea of using grand architecture to signal 
the the rise of uh, the city that was growing faster than uh, any other city in North America for at the turn of the 20th century. So this building was this showpiece, and Simon was selected to build it, and he basically poured into the building um, uh, a a history lesson in stone, and he was hoping to be figured out. Ah, so he, the people that commissioned this work and and hired him, they didn't know what he was doing. No, I I don't think so. I mean, there's some speculation that some of uh, the artists, he had some very seasoned artists that uh, worked alongside him, might have known one uh, one element or another. But I think in total, he was the grand architect, and it was his vision to build it in that way. So just walking through the building, uh, the, the sphinxes, you wouldn't notice because they're, they're not visible from the ground, but they bear a hieroglyphic inscription on their chest, a bonafide ancient hieroglyphic message, which uh, beckons the sun god to give life to something in the building. Um, well, and we find out later what that is. You walk into the Grand Staircase Hall, perhaps the most beautiful staircase hall in, in North America, and it is designed uh, to be exactly 66.6 feet in width and 66.6 feet in length. Just a few more moments on the Manitoba legislature because it's fascinating. You were sort of giving us the guided tour, but I can't figure out where the architect was coming from because, I mean, on the one hand, there are allusions to, like, the Last Supper in there, I recall reading about, but then there are these, you know, more pagan allusions. Was he, was he a Christian? What was he? Oh, yeah, he was certainly uh, uh, a Christian persuasion, but uh, as part of the fraternal tradition in which he's emulating Freemasonry, they uh, uphold the notion that they are the progenitors, the builders of the great religious institutions of the world, so from the Abrahamic faith, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, right up into the uh, pagan temples and, uh, of course, the, the Egyptian marbles. So the idea is that he contained in one building this kind of encyclopedia of world architecture as an homage to the craft of Freemasonry. And um, in, in that regard, there is one building that stands alone as the, um, the beau ideal of perfection, and that's King Solomon's Temple. And that's where he chose to incorporate perhaps the most important room in the building, uh, as a perfect reconstruction of the Holy of Holies of King Solomon's Temple with a very with a replica Ark of the Covenant. And was it wasn't it his intention? Uh, this is kind of a pipe dream, I think. But he actually thought that the uh, I guess they call them MLAs out there, the members of the Legislative Assembly would actually wear togas to, to, <laughs> to debate right. and to vote. Well, yes, he he is a student of the idea that uh, arrives out of Freemasonry, that architecture, among all disciplines known to the human imagination, has the capacity to reform the soul. So the idea is, is that could you construct a building that by virtue of its design and its geometry and its, and its uh, uh, orientation, that it would in- inculcate um, divine virtues upon you. And that was the idea with this building, so much so that he believed that when it opened to the public, it would make you more intelligent, better balanced, and altogether more civilized human beings just by entering into the building. And uh, I, I take the people, for the last seven years, I've done guided tours of the mm-hmm. building, and um, uh, I sort of conclude by saying at the very end, do you feel in some regard, knowing what you've now seen here, that uh, you, you feel somewhat more illuminated as, as you leave? 
and uh, obviously I leave that as a, as a burning question. Right. And the premier at the time, Gary Doerr, mm-hmm. uh, didn't he come wandering into your office one time and ask asking you about your work and, and said something like, what do you think the place is haunted? And mm-hmm. Tell me about Well, that. actually, uh, he invited me to his office. Oh. I wrote uh, my undergraduate thesis on the building, focusing on two rooms. And uh, one I called the room of protection, the other I called the altar. And he, unbeknownst to me, this, this paper that I wrote had circulated to the highest levels of government. And when it landed on the premier's desk, he called me into his office. And I was rather shocked to see across his oak desk a copy of my, my thesis. And he was flipping through it, and he sternly looked up at me and said, I think that you think this building's haunted. And I very brashly said, uh, the White House has nothing on this building. And right <laughs> then and there, he gave me a grant to um, explore the building's properties. And he said, well, what do we need? And I said, well, I need to be in this building at all times of the day. Uh, I need to go to all parts of the building. I need access to all government documents related to the building's construction. And um, I was basically given this carte blanche access for two years, and it led to what later became the publication, The Hermetic Code. Well, good for you for, for grabbing the bull, or I should say the bisons, <laughs> bison, <laughs> right. by the, uh, bison by the uh, the horns. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, and, uh, and, and people have sort of referred to you as a real-life uh, uh, Dan Brown. Uh, for unraveling this mystery. Um, now, I want, I want to get into this, this book again. Let me hold this up again. Astana. Mm-hmm. I gotta be honest with you. I, I was not familiar with, uh, Kazakhstan's capital city until, uh, this impressive book arrived at my front door. Why do you say it could be the, uh, the capital city for the Illuminati? Well, those aren't my words. That's basically the, um, conclusion that is many people, bloggers and, and otherwise have, um, uh, uh, exclaimed on the internet. So that's what drew, drew my attention to, to the city is, well, f- uh, on the surface, and, 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 and rightly so, most people in the West probably think of Kazakhstan and the knee-jerk thought response is, isn't that the homeland of Borat, um, uh, let alone the Illuminati capital of the world. <laughs> so I was, uh, similar to how I stumbled upon the Manitoba Legislative Building, I was preparing a, a graduate course on utopian cities for students, and I wanted to do a chronology of this, these times and efforts to build paradise on Earth. So I thought I'd begin with Plato's Atlantis and conclude with um, Astana, the most recently planned capital in the world, the capital of Kazakhstan. And as I was doing my, my Google search, I stumbled upon the same nefarious conclusions, that when you see a giant glass pyramid, a, uh, a large all-seeing eye, and a reconstruction of a UFO, as the architectural marvels of the capital that has led many people to assume that it must be the Illuminati capital of the world. And, and funnily enough, with around the same time, there were three great archaeological discoveries that happened in Kazakhstan uh, over the last, say, uh, seven years. One was um, uh, potentially uh, the, the first step pyramid on the the, the steppes of um, uh, of Central Asia. Uh, the other are massive, immense geoglyphs like the Nazca lines in Peru. But um, and among these symbols that have been carved on the ground, perhaps 8,000 years ago, is the, the very first swastika. And uh, additionally, there is, and this has created a lot of rumble, is a giant 1,200 foot 
pentagram, which happened to be spotted by somebody doing a search on Google Earth that's called the Devil's Pentagram. So uh, there were all of these wild associations with uh, Astana, and I thought this was the perfect opportunity to step in and find out what was, uh, what was really brewing there. And um, uh, funnily enough, and my apologies for this monologue, but as I was doing all this research, like out of the blue, I got a call from the protocol officer of Manitoba every now and then when dignitaries come to Manitoba. I give, uh, I'm requested by the government to give tours, uh, whether it's the Prince of Wales or um, Her Majesty the Queen. Um, I'll be asked to give a kind of sanitized version of the Hermetico tour. And on this occasion, the ambassador of Kazakhstan and his wife were there at the same time that I'm reading all across my um, uh, the tabs on my computer screen that the Illuminati has created a capital called Astana. <laughs> so I just jumped on the opportunity to meet him. And uh, when we met, um, I basically said that... Um, the, the architecture is so bizarre and strange, you need a, um, a formidable study a historian to examine it. And um, that, that is what launched the book. Well, now the, the man behind a, a lot of the, the designs is, is the leader there, right? Naz, mm. oh, Naz, yeah. Nazarbayev, who, I mean, he rules that country with an iron fist. Oh, totally. Uh, I mean, here, this, this, uh, among the uh, 21st century autocrats, this guy is Tom Brady. There is perhaps <laughs> no other modern leader to have used architecture and fantasy to crystallize the gr- dreams of a nation like Nazarbayev, and he has done it with uh, pretty much uh, autonomous control. Um, and so Astana is really the, the brainchild of a single leader, and um, so that, that's, that, that's what he set out to do. I, I turn this on its head if, um, if you um, have, have peered through my book yeah. that um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in not looking at the, the, the politics of, of statescraft, but really how we have used architecture and myth to um, galvanize our hopes and dreams, unlike uh, nothing else. These are the two ingredients that have, that have really forged nations, architecture and mythology. All right. It's quite a remarkable building, this Beiterek Tower. It looks like a, a, a hand coming out of the ground holding a golden ball or a golden egg. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about that, that building. That's totally bizarre. Yeah. It's, um, Beiterek Tower is meant to symbolize the Tree of Life, and you summit the Tree of Life, and you're informed about this ancient Kazakh fable, which is actually a Sumerian table, a fable called the Tale of Atana, perhaps the oldest myth in world history, um, around um, uh, this this young child hero that saves humanity by being lifted up into heaven on the back of a hero, uh, on the back of of an eagle. And this building basically evokes this ancient fable and constructs myth into this this golden glory. So the sphere in the center is meant to be the sun. You're meant to participate in this journey by journeying up into the uh, the golden rays of the sun, and you peer down the great mall of Astana, and you see nothing but phoenix, phoenix, eagle, eagle. And uh, I look into that, and I explore that notion of how eagle and statecraft have gone hand-in-hand hand since prior to Rome. Well, in fact, why is it that the eagle has been the emblem of choice for um, the, the rise of a new culture or civilization, whether it's Mexico 
or um, Germany yeah. or Persia or the very first city-states of Sumer. It's always been the eagle. The Byzantine, so the Byzantine Empire, is. the double-headed eagle in that case. Yeah, of course, exactly. I mean, but Zeus, one of his symbols was the eagle. Does it go back to Zeus? Yes. In fact, Zeus is one of the uh, elements of this age-old fable called the Tale of Etana. Most people, if they know anything about uh, Sumerian literature, are probably familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh, but yep. uh, even older than Gilgamesh is this story, uh, which begins basically with the construction of a great city, a monumental central tower, and the quest for eternal youth with the help of an eagle. And this story has been retold in countless ways, about 300 variations around the world, from Ireland to the Arctic Circle, from the Alexander Romance to Garuda, the myth of... Uh, of um, uh, the Hindu um, uh, um, uh, deity Vishnu and countless others. In Greek mythology, it is Ganymede, who is the boy abducted by Zeus in the form of an eagle to serve as the cupbearer in Olympus. So it's, it's a very ancient uh, fable and it, story or myth. So the buildings in Astana are not just you know, and I think that's a very blasé account to just say, oh, it's an, it's an Illuminati city. It goes much, much deeper. It goes into the, the, the notion of myth as a form of, of changing a whole new order of things. And that's what the capital is setting out to do. More of my conversation with architectural technologist Frank Albo when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. One tablespoon of ESS-60 from C60 Evo helps keep me pain-free, energized, and mentally focused. And I'm sleeping so much better since I started taking ESS-60 back in November. ESS-60 is the consumable form of C60, the miracle molecule discovered by Nobel Prize winning chemists in the 1990s. ESS-60 is a mega antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C. Check out the Paris study, a peer-reviewed scientific study online, where ESS-60 suspended in olive oil was fed to rats. The rats fed ESS-60 lived almost twice their normal lifespan. I can't sit here and tell you I'm going to live to be 112, but I'm 56 and I haven't felt this youthful, energized, and pain-free since I was in my 20s. ESS-60 from C60 Evo. If you want to discover the benefits of this amazing miracle molecule for yourself, go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link for c60evo.com. And don't forget to use the code RS1SPEC when ordering and you'll receive an additional 5% off. ESS-60, the miracle molecule from C60 Evo. It's changed my life discover what it can do for you. This product has not been evaluated by the FDA and is not intended to cure, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Theoretical physicists say that there is as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Frank Elbow is uh, with us. You'll know him from his work with the Hermetic Code, and his new book is Astana, Architecture, Myth, and Destiny. We'll tell you about the Astana Challenge. This is really, uh, really cool. There are sort of clues encrypted into this book, and if you solve the puzzle, basically, you can win a trip 
to Astana, a luxury vacation. Do they get a lot of tourists there now, or is it kind of a closed society, Frank? No, it, they, they just celebrated the opening of the World Expo, and uh, about uh, three million people went uh, to visit Astana for that. Um, you do not need a visa from, from Canada. It's the, of the Central Asian countries. This is really the, um, kind of the crown jewel, as it were. Uh, very open, uh, towards, uh, foreign, um, uh, tourism and also foreign investment. <laughs> oh, interesting. But it's, it's, ostensibly it's a communist country, isn't it? No. No. Ah, okay. Interesting. It, it, it was. It was one of the 15 countries that broke off after the Soviet Union. It was the least likely to succeed because Kazakhstan had been plagued by perhaps the the, the worst deck of cards in the in the uh, 20th century. It was the dumping ground for Stalin's gulags. It was a nuclear test site for nearly 600 uh, secret nuclear tests, and uh, the world's worst environmental disaster, the drying up of the Aral Sea, mm. uh, had happened on Kazakh soil, and there was a famine there. Uh, so for um, uh, it, it's really a, an apotheosis from, uh, like, it literally the flight of uh, the resurrection of the eagle could perhaps be best symbolized by um, uh, this city. It was the, the engine that could, so to speak. Fascinating. So back to the Beitarek Tower. Okay. Um, you have this wooden globe at the top, and it's surrounded by these, I guess they're petals, uh, 17 of them, which are supposed to represent some of the major religions. So, what's the message there? Okay, uh, I think you're conflating that with the Pyramid of Peace and Reconciliation. Ah, perhaps. I yeah. do that sometimes. So I there, conflate. There are three, three major buildings that um, are... Uh, most noteworthy, perhaps four in Astana, the Baitiric Tower, which we discussed, yep. the um, the giant glass uh, sphere of the World Expo site, the world's largest uh, sphere. Yes. Uh, there's also the um, Presidential Library, which I described as the all-seeing eye. Perhaps there's no other building in the world more uh, um, redolent of an all-seeing eye than this one, and then the building that we're talking about now, which is the Pyramid of Peace and Reconciliation. It sounds bizarre to say this, but every three years, at the apex of a giant glass pyramid in Kazakhstan is where the Assembly of World Traditional Religions meet, where they invite um, religious leaders from around the world to meet and discuss notions of religious equality. Uh, it's a sort of multi-faith cathedral dedicated to the renunciation of violence and promotion of faith. But the reason it's, it's done there is because um, uh, Kazakhstan in its soil, in its soul and soil, is uh, a nomadic country. It's uh, partially, I think, superficially Islamic, but they're very much open to the uh, tolerance of other faiths. It's perhaps the most tolerant of uh, the uh, Central Asian countries, and because of this, it has been a kind of hodgepodge of, of religious cultural experience. It incorporates Buddhism, uh, Christianity, Nestorian Christianity, uh, the mystical branch of Islam called Sufism. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a, a Jewish presence, and so even Zoroastrianism, some of the lost ancient religions like Tengrianism, this animist belief system celebrating the, um, the virtue of the sky, are all found here, still left alive uh, in Kazakh soil. So they've decided to evoke this, in the form of a building that is a pyramid. Interesting. And is in there fact, that, that yeah. uh, the world uh, traditional religions, they meet every three years 
um, at uh, the apex of this of this pyramid, and that will be happening this year in June. And what is the significance of uh, of the three levels? Is there kind of an illuminated symbolism mm-hmm. there? Well, the the building itself is designed by the British architect. Norman Foster to be a journey from darkness into light. So when you descend into the building, you literally descend into the belly of the earth in this darkened foyer and uh, passage, and then slowly you ascend up to this gleaming uh, peak of light where it's uh, surrounded by a kind of, well, it's really a sanctum sanctorum from darkness to light. And uh, on the on the ceiling, again, isn't there kind of another kind of an invocation of the sun god? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, the 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 two features in are essential to understanding the matrix of belief in Astana. One is the ever presence of the sun, and the other is the eternal blue sky. So this the gold of the sun and the blue of the sky are, uh, I think, even by government prescription, buildings have to have either a blue or a gold facade. But the sun god isn't that antithetical to Christianity? Well, um, it depends how you uh, how you want to look at it. I mean, it's the uh, I mean, in, in in what sense? Well, when I think of the sun god, I mean, we think of you know pagan pagan worship. Uh, the, yeah, but the, in, the in this case, it's more a notion of. Uh, the the world is uh, the cosmos is alive, and there are life giving values and virtues of of the sun. And in many ways, even Yahweh and uh, uh, Jesus from the Gospels are uh, evoking these old uh, solar notions of um, of heavenly ascent and the power of the sun. Well, we're going to talk about this entertainment center, sort of billed as the world's largest tent. Tell me about that. Okay, this is another Norman Foster creation. It is uh, meant to be a, both an allusion to the highest peak in Kazakhstan, the Khan Tengri Mountain. There goes the Tengri again, the notion of uh, this reference to the supreme celestial deity of the Altaic world, world the, the, the sky. Um, but also it is um, meant to symbolize the tent, the ancient nomadic tent that um, uh, the, the Kazakhs would... Um, uh, uh, journey with, and in fact, in many regards, the the tent is seemingly facile and, and a rudimentary architectural construction, but it is full of um, esoteric symbolism, which is incorporated into this building. So the building on the on the surface looks like some Xanadu-esque fantasy uh, um, shopping mall in, in Kazakhstan, but on another level, it is um, meant to evoke these these older traditions of um, of the ancient nomads and uh, Tengrianism in, in particular, this uh, this belief of um, well uh, being ecologically minded and um, uh, uh, deeply connected to the earth and nature. Uh, and then they have this uh, the shopping center. It's got an artificial beach. Yeah, uh, right. So it's got. <laughs> I see. I even forget these other details. Um, right. So there, it's. Um, uh, it, it's a bit of a pleasure dome in that there's uh, all, all the shopping experiences, and at the the, the height of it, there is a, a full beach with water slide and and everything. And I'm guessing that this was all paid for because this is an oil-rich country, right? They've they've got billions right. and I'm, billions of barrels of oil there. 
Correct. I mean, and we, we should probably clarify that, that um, uh, Kazakhstan has the full house of uh, natural resources. It's rich in oil, gas, diamond, uranium, and gold. And this is, it uses its tremendous oil wealth to create this, this city to be a kind of beacon of um, a kind of billboard of foreign investment. That's one level of looking at, at, at the city. But beneath that are these mythical elements and themes that actually take us back to um, our, our ancient collective past. And with only, what, about 16 million residents, I mean, are, mm-hmm. are, are most of the citizens then rich? No. No, no, no. The uh, uh, Astana itself is designed to be uh, only grow to three million people. Most of what they did was in designing the, the capital is they designed the capital to be a master plan from start. Most capital cities don't do this, but in, in, in Astana, it's, it's perimetered by a, a giant tree ring. And it's meant to only grow to 3 million people because after that amount, you get urban squalor, um, uh, poverty, and other uh, uh, things that aren't good for the civic good. So this uh, right now, I think it has a population of just over a million. But once it reaches 3 million, then they've already been preparing other planned capitals. Aha. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, the, I know this isn't a, a show about politics, but, you know, the president there, the, I think according to the Constitution, they're only be supposed to serve five-year terms. And here we are since independence, <laughs> sure. 1991, he's been the only president. That's right. So I, I mean, you, you, this guy is the um, a kind of real-life George Washington of uh, Kazakhstani people. Uh, he is, uh, in, in many respects, and I sort of compare him to Walt Disney in in the book, uh, well, both kind of Jefferson meets Walt Disney on steroids <laughs> in the sense that uh, Jefferson being a, uh, a founding father that believed ar- architecture could guide the uh, civic process of the nation, and uh, Disney in the sense of creating this fantasy experience that is meant to collectively uh, bridge together uh, ideas of... Um, of uh, solving the chaotic urban settings of, of modern cities. That's what Disney set out to do. He was uh, spent 30 years of his life working on town planning. So, uh, but him and uh, as uh, his life and experience is rather, it's almost like a storybook legend. He grew up in a nomad's yurt, the most humble beginnings uh, on the steps, and he rose to become perhaps the most uh, strategically important uh, leader in Central Asia. I mean, this is the bridge between the East and the West, and it is wholly run by. Nazarbayev. Nazarbayev is the uh, is Kazakhstan, and in um, and, and many, they thought it was a foolish errand that he was trying to build this capital city. He didn't have much support for it, but um, uh, that was what he set out to do. And he used, um, you know, fable, folklore, and um, ideas of architecture to to do that. So it, that, that, that to me makes it unique. It seems like they've decided, okay, we'll get to the democracy part later. Let's just work on the economic development first. Yeah, very much so. That Nazarbayev, right from the outset, said that Kazakhstan would be a managed democracy. That's sort of a euphemism for saying, okay, we were under the Soviet Union for nearly 300 years. There's no way we're going to go in toto to democracy and suddenly think this is going to be rainbows and lollipops. So it's certainly managed. He doesn't have any official opposition, and he is elected democratically, you could say, quote-unquote, by 90 percentile 
since 1991. They have no interest in wanting another public figure. That's why I call him the Tom Brady of autocrats. <laughs> Most people hate him, but he wins Super Bowls. And as you say, to refer to it as the, you know, the Illuminati capitalist is kind of trite. However, let me ask you, I mean, is there some nefarious intention here? Should we be concerned about what's going on, not only in Astana, but in Kazakhstan? Well, that wasn't the subject of this book. And I'm glad you brought that up, because what I set out to do in this book was to do something I'd never done before, which was my entire body of research up until this point was in decoding real, legitimate Masonic buildings, gardens, cemeteries, and the like. And in this case, this was a wholly imaginary Masonic capital, at least in the eyes of many, or an Illuminati capital, that I wanted to encode. And in the process of encoding this capital, I mean, I've placed these ideas here. It's not like I'm inventing them entirely. Mm -hmm. I'm using solid historical research and work. And the reason I'm setting out to do this is because I think it is myth more than anything else that can actually change the world. So I'm using this city as a, as a fable, as a way of kind of turning things on its head. There is a subtext in my entire book. I spent a very long time working on writing a subtext within the book. Every image is very carefully chosen. Even every word seemingly out of place is there for a very specific reason because I'm inviting, I want to invite, the public to read deeply using the, um, uh, the language of design, architecture, and the imagination to see what lies beneath. And that's what this book is really about. At one level, it's a superficial reading, just like the stories of the Bible. That is one reading of the Bible. At a deeper level, there is an allegorical level. And at a much more even deeper level than that, there are different truths. And so I'm setting out to say, ah, at one level, you see that this is the Illuminati capital of the world. On another level, you'll, you'll find that there are these mythic aso associations. And yet at another level, which I'm really hoping to, to get people's attention, is to look and read very deeply. And to do that, I've created this kind of ploy, uh, a device to get people in the door, which is this $30,000 prize, or perhaps by this summer, it might be two Bitcoin. So I'm going to use <laughs> some that as a kind of carrot to get you to read deeply into the text. And when it's solved, you'll find out why I set out to write this book the way I did. That's the Asana Challenge. Now, can you tell us a little bit about how this works exactly? Well, all I can tell you is that Concealed in the work is enigmas, secrets, and um, uh, a kind of hidden language, as it were. And I'm setting out to find the astute reader to look carefully at, um, at the book, every element of the book. And by doing so, I properly engage you, hopefully, to participate in the myth. That's the point. It's kind right. of Joseph Campbell-esque in the sense yes. that uh, Joseph Campbell said, where is Odysseus today? He is on the street. You are Hercules. And I want in a similar way to say, listen, if we are going to change the world, then we need to uh, look at things at a much deeper level. So how do they enter? If you just go to my website, it's uh, astonamyth.com. Well, mm -hmm. first of all, you have to buy the book. Right. You buy the book, you go through it, and um, uh, you might see that there are some things out of place. For instance, I, I, was, uh, I announced on Facebook today that I was going to give a clue. Uh, it has remained unsolved so far. So what I do is, is on my Instagram and my Facebook, 
uh, I, I place little kind of suggestive clues to get people to get kind of uh, deeper into the, the meaning of uh, the subtext of the book. Uh, by doing so, you just go to my website, astonamyth.com. There's a thing that says uh, Astana Challenge. You click on that and you submit your answer. This is absolutely brilliant. It's a, it's a terrific idea. It gets people engaged. And as I said, it's a fabulous, uh, fabulous, impressive book. Frank, I've enjoyed this so much. I learned a heck of a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you. And again, it's astanamyth.com. Astanamyth.com. Yes, astanamyth.com. And also look at my Instagram. I just posted a clue today. So um, off you go. It, uh, the prize is still wide open. All right. Frank Albo, thank you again. Thank you. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back on the other side to share a few details about an upcoming episode. Hey there, August is fast approaching, and that means I'm hard at work on another edition of Inner Sanctum, my free monthly newsletter. Inner Sanctum features my monthly brief, a column of my thoughts and opinions on what's happening in the world. It features a spotlight on a past guest, a look ahead to an upcoming episode of my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show. It features a look at this month in conspiracy and UFO history and my Conspiracy Unlimited podcast episode pick of the month and so much more. To get your free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, delivered to your email inbox, just go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. Scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on Inner Sanctum and register. It's fast, easy, and again, absolutely free. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, Gulf War veteran and retired police officer Ed Hashbarger joins me to examine the science of fracking. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>